0: The propensity to excessive simplification is indeed natural to the mind of man, since it is only by abstraction and generalization which necessarily imply the neglect of a multitude of particulars, that he can stretch his puny faculties so as to embrace a minute portion of the illimitable vastness of the universe. James George Fraser. Welcome to this week's episode of Warfare, Advancement, and Revisionism. My name is Preston Floyd, and as always, I am your host. I'd like to thank you all for listening. Uh, I hope you enjoyed last week's uh, special episode. Uh, it was a lot of fun, and I'd again like to thank my friend Kyle for helping me out with that. Uh, it had been recorded well in advance, so just uh, keep that in mind. So there were some things we didn't touch on. Um, and I would like to go ahead and get to that now Um, before we get in uh, I would like to acknowledge that there was a very devastating earthquake um, that has struck both Turkey and Syria as of this recording the last death count estimate that I saw it was over 43,000 across both countries uh, together and that number is going to get higher still Um, I encourage anyone who is able uh, to find a reputable reputable charity um, and give anything that you may be able to Um, and I know that this can be hard when it comes to charities relating to Syria uh, due to the civil war and other factors contributing to charitable causes um, that actually benefit the you know The average everyday citizen of that country uh, can be very difficult. Um, I thought the Red Crescent was a good option but apparently from what I've read and a couple of people have messaged me um, the Syrian branch of the Red Crescent uh, is basically a front for uh, Bashar al-Assad's dictatorship and um, maybe not may not be the best option Um, A couple of people recommended Doctors Without Borders, which is, you know, a very famous organization. Um, I do believe that Turkey's Red Crescent is much more um, useful uh, and much more uh, on the level, I guess, for lack of a better term. and They are not controlled directly by uh, the government. So, um, not that Turkey has nearly as a authoritarian government as Syria uh, it is still uh, a democracy and um, all that stuff so um, just keep in mind if you do feel that you can give uh, just try to pick an organization that's actually going to utilize your funds as uh, efficiently and as usefully as possible Uh, But with that being said, I think it's time to go ahead and get to the focus of this week's uh, history podcast. And that is um, the kind of the, we're going to finish up talking about Catalhoyuk, And kind of talk about just some things I brought up last time. And how some of this has changed and how it relates to Gobekli Tepe. And how this is kind of setting the stage for... Um, urbanization and the urban revolution that takes place in this period that we've been discussing. Uh, so to that end, I'd like to answer some feedback I got from the last episode. Um, and I had a question basically of how we know that um, these people are having um, a slightly less healthier state or bodies than their, you know, people who are hunter-gatherers and their neighbors and, you know, their, uh, immediate ancestors, um, part of it is the state of their skeletons and their remains, uh, they are on average smaller, um, I, um, the, the numbers for this are a little, little, um, f- you know, fuzzy, Um, Because it's hard to tell in some cases how tall remains could have been. But in terms of size, I think um, there's some of the numbers I've read have had around about about, um, these people could be up to 20 to 25% shorter or smaller in stature than their um, immediate ancestors. Um, So, you know, and, and the reason this is happening is because they aren't getting quite as a well-balanced of a diet um, as their um, hunter-gathering neighbors and ancestors were. uh, They were relying much more heavily on grains and domesticated sources of food. Now these things are not necessarily unhealthy but uh, you think about today we have a high carb diet and um, as long as you're you know exercising and you're getting a balanced you know, intake of other sources of nutrients, um, you know, you're generally going to be in good shape. Um, but this is something that might not have been happening, at least in the middle and late period at Um You can tell by the state of people's teeth as well. Um, their teeth are generally much more worn down. And so these people are just adapting to a new type of diet. And it's going to take humans in all walks of life, everywhere in the world, after they settle down to an immediate kind of sedentary lifestyle, there is a transitional period where people are adapting to this new diet and foodstuffs. Um, uh, and it's not always going to be terrible. Um, some places it's going to be worse than others. Um, but just keep that in mind, uh, as we go forward. Um, In fact, there's been a theory that I've read in a couple of places that, um, part of the reason that these people are hanging on to their skeletons of their ancestors is that their ancestors, in some cases, are much larger than them, um, and you could tell that just from the skull size, so, you know, you would honor this, you know, great, like, hulking giant who was your forebearer, um, so that's kind of another thing another um and speaking of like tooth uh quality that's something that we'll talk about when we get to egypt um egypt of course being near the desert uh there was a big problem with sand kind of getting into um grains and things like that uh and it led to a large amount of problems with teeth um a number of egyptian mummies from all walks of life the the rich and the poor um all have in you know poor to bad teeth. Um, I think we've been able to tell that a couple of pharaohs um, died, if not from you know teeth infections, those infection uh, infections weakened them enough to die to other means. So, um, and Chatalhoyuk, while not in a desert, is probably a little bit more in terms of, um, it's not quite a, you know, tropical setting. It's got some dust and dirt around it, um, and that's just something that could have played into health concerns. It also doesn't help that these people are sitting in these small rooms, you know, during the evening and letting smoke. They have holes in their ceilings to let the smoke out, but it's not great ventilation. They don't have windows, so they probably have a lot of problems breathing and things like that. Um, I wouldn't surprise me if they had serious lung problems. Uh, So now I'd like to go into a couple of things about what people have thought about Chattahoyuk historically, and as time has gone on, things that kind of disprove or poke holes in some of the more popular theories about Chalcolithic. And to start with that, we're going to focus on this idea of a mother goddess cult. Now, this idea has been around for a number of years. Um, I think the first um, first writings kind of hypothesizing this idea have been around since. Um, I believe the 1830s or 1840s and a number of people have written on it and you know have agreed with the premise uh, for whatever reason um and there you know uh there are some very famous names uh, Maria Gimbutas who's a very famous uh archaeologist and anthropologist um there have been um a number of others in other fields um I believe uh, Frederick Engels uh, was a big proponent of this ideology as well as, um, uh, Robert Graves famously, who, if those of you who don't know, he's a British, uh, poet slash historian. Uh, he's most famous for probably I Claudius, which is one of my favorite books, uh, of all time. And anyway, so the idea that, um, essentially is this, that in the uh, earlier parts of uh, human prehistory, uh, that there was a single religion focused around the worship of an earth mother, who, you know, that she was worshipped so that she would bring about good harvests, uh, fertile animals, fertile earth, fertile humans basically uh, and that she's this kind of ubiquitous figure and that um you know she was very important to everyone um and part of the big discovery uh at Catalhoyuk of course were those seated goddess figures uh, well not just seated but the famous one that we talked about um you know this seemed to be a very early proof of this um and this idea that uh the, you know there's an earth mother a goddess basically that you know led uh you know that humans like universally worship was very popular um and uh you know it became a very um very big thing in second wave feminism in the seventies. Uh, there was a book I think written in seventy four seventy five by uh, Merlin Stone uh, called "When God Was a Woman," um, and uh, that was um, that was kind of uh, focused on a number of things, including ancient Egypt and as well as um, uh, the Minoan civilization. Uh, which had a lot of female figures holding snakes um, that were kind of, you know, believed to be, like, the one thing that the Minoans worshipped. So this idea that there's this ancient cult kind of spread throughout the ancient Near East where, you know, women were in charge, that this was um, kind of an example of, you know, when women were in charge of humans, and that this was um, kind of a lost feature of civilization, and part of the reason why we became civilized in these sedentary societies. Now, uh, there are some very good theories and some very good points in some of these things, and we're going to get into um, specifics later, Um, but... It should be noted that cattle, Chattel Hoyuk especially is not exactly a great source of um confirmation for these theories. Um the seated woman figure uh that was famously discovered by James Mellert during excavations of Chattel Hoyuk was found in a grain silo. Um and a large number, in fact, of these female figures uh, were just found in trash heaps. Uh, they were shown no particular reverence. Um, there is no temple complex in Um Most, if not all, of the buildings seem to be either residential or for storage of food and grain. Um, There is no evidence of any type of uh, priestess class or um, temple of any kind in Chattahouya that has been found. Um, And just, you know, as we'll see later in history, just because a culture worships a goddess does not mean that they are necessarily... um, female-led. Uh, let's just think of ancient Athens. They, you know, their primary goddess was Athena. She had prime position in the city and its festivals. Her, of course, her temple, on the Acropolis, was the primary place for Athenian, you know, social life. Uh, the Athenians were not feminist by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, they, in fact, they were probably some of the most, uh, Uh, um, misogynistic people uh, in the world, uh, probably ever. Um, You have places like Japan, um, where Amaterasu, the sun goddess, she is the ancestor of their emperors, a line that goes back into well before the common era. Um, They are not exactly known for being very, Uh, open to females in positions of power now that may not have been true in the far past in fact as we will see um they may have been more accepting of women in leadership positions in earlier times but no matter what they're still worshiping you know amaterasu and her descendants um they do get progressively more um masculine dominated society, even though the goddess remains the same. So just because you're worshipping a female goddess does not necessarily mean that you are um all about, you know, female empowerment or female leadership. Um, we have evidence of this that this is not true. Now that's not to say females weren't in charge. Um but we have no evidence of this. In fact Chattel Hoyuk, as far as we can tell, Males and females are buried in very traditional, you know, very similar ways. There is no ostentatious, you know, decoration or burial goods or shrines to the dead. In fact, the only uh, individuals who have any kind of um, extra care place with their graves where they're buried with items or things like that are children's graves. Um, they seem to have mourned very deeply their children dying. Um, I'm willing to bet, at least at Chattel Hoyuk, that this was a very egalitarian society, at least in terms of, you know, um, any kind of religious worship. Um, and another factor that kind of strikes against this idea that there was this universal female cult, at least in Chattel Hoyuk, um, they have been finding figures that are not female. There are male figures that have been unearthed there are um other th- you know uh, there are figures that have no discernible sex uh they're just you know anthrop, you know just androgynous um so you know they're not just making female goddesses they are not um focusing solely on the female form so that's not to say they're is not a goddess that was worshiped there that's not to say that women were not in charge i'm just saying that there is no evidence for any of this and you should take a lot of this stuff with a grain of salt um a lot of neo-pagans still kind of buy into this idea that there's this earth goddess or a triple goddess is another thing that kind of comes up in the literature that was one that robert graves kind of um heavily endorsed, if you read, uh, um, it's the White Goddess, I believe, is his work on that, um, he was a big proponent of that idea, so just keep in mind, you know, take the, you know, uh, you know, the Universal Earth Goddess cult very, very much with a grain of salt, um, But again, that's not to say that it didn't exist. I'm just saying that there's never been any evidence found and that if this religion did resist, there was definitely some other component to it um, that we do not know and have no frame of reference for. Um, So yes, the second thing to talk about when discussing Chattel and I've already touched on a little bit, um, there is no clear delineation Uh, of any kind of classism, or sexism, or anything like that. Um, The homes are very much universal. Some are larger than others. I'm sure that was just a function of, you know, family size. Um, There is not any, like, difference in terms of what is stored in these homes, other than, I'm sure, what, you know, people were making in terms of art. In fact, the art that we may have been found that we may have found excuse me um the that could have been one of the big uh differences between homes just who's a good artist and who isn't you know you might you might marry someone from a house four rows down because she comes from a good family of artists or he comes from a good family of artists you know or vice versa whatever whatever the case may be. You may want some um, beautification in your home. Um, you're essentially living in a bachelor apartment with like six other people probably at a time, if not more. Um, so there is no clear social cl- um, order, no clear political order, no clear um, sexual uh, dichotomy. Uh, in fact, I-, I feel like it's very probable that Chattahoyuk was gender-neutral, at least in terms of, like, any kind of leadership, and that's something we see in hunter-gatherer societies, at least, that have survived to the modern day. Um, Men and women have their separate spheres. Um, There may be times when one sphere has more importance than the other, but it's not always the case that it's always male over female, or female over male. It's just a case that there are differences during certain times or maybe concerning certain events where male might come before female or female might become might become uh, might come before male uh and i feel like chattahoya at least from the evidence we have is probably still aligned to that type of social order uh, and there's no evidence to disagree with me on that as far as i know um and least I've seen in my research. Um, And that has led to uh, this idea that there is no social order, that they're, you know, fairly equal, was very much touted by, uh, I believe it was um, uh, Frederick Ingalls, when he was talking about, um, you know, the history of the world. He's like, uh, he was a big believer, at least in some of his writings, that in this before time, before you know, kings and gods that people lived in harmony altogether in kind of this, uh, utopia, um, which, you know, kind of disagrees with the entire tenets of, uh, Marxist-Leninism history, and, um, you know, the, you know, the entire Marxist, Marxist theory of history kind of, uh, kind of disagrees with that. Uh, also, if it's such a great, you know, ubiquitous thing, why did it collapse? Ingalls um, doesn't really go into detail on that, at least in theory. Um, and, you know, uh, but we'll we'll get to the communist critique of history later, much later, thankfully. Um, but this idea that, you know, that these people are somehow more advanced spiritually than us, uh, led them to establishing our civilization, and we've begun to degenerate from that, um, this is a theory for a lot of, um, people in different, uh, political or, or, you know, social spheres, um, you know, part of the thing of Gobekli Tepe, um, you know, that this was an advanced civilization that was wiped out my event or received knowledge from some, uh, extraordinary or supernatural source or alien sources, um, that they were teaching us how to, uh, grow and communicate with the world in a way that modern man is unable to. Um, there's a whole bunch of other things tied into this type of society. Um, When, in fact, we really don't know what led to the end of uh, Catalhoyuk as a sedentary society or sedentary site. Um, But there are some theories, and I will go into those now. Um, The first theory is overcrowding. Um, We talked about how Catalhoyuk could have had um, over 5,000 people. Um, at its height, and then it begins to see a decline. Um, Why that happened is that there may have just been too many people living there, and it just got too cramped, too chaotic, and there were disagreements, and that caused groups to leave in waves, carrying with them either knowledge of agriculture or herding or both, and then they took these Knowledges or this knowledge to uh, other locations, um, or to greener pastures, if you will. That is not to say they cut off entirely communication with Chautauqua. They could have, did not necessarily mean they did. Um, there is also the possibility that the river uh, lost some, you know, lost flow, or it just you know, it was not enough of a source of water or clean water. It could have become polluted just due to the nature of, you know, humans living in a big space like that. Um, it's possible, just as we've seen, uh, Anatolia is prone to earthquakes. Now, Çatalhöyük is not lost all at once. There are phases where, you know, certain parts of the city fall into disuse and disrepair and they're purposely dug over and collapsed in um there doesn't appear to have been a um you know a massive disaster that causes them to abandon the site um but it is possible i suppose that a a natural disaster or an earthquake of some size caused a partial collapse of the city or the the site, and then you know it was repaired later, and then you know it just it may have been too much uh, effort to keep it up, you know, over a long period of time, and then eventually that led to people leaving, uh, and then the repaired sites or repaired part of the sites fall to further disuse and so on and so forth. It's also possible that the um, the the ground that they were using for, uh, agriculture, uh, lost some of its fertility. Um, it's kind of on a clayish alluvium, um, which is just kind of a loose, uh, deposit. Um, it's caused by running water and streams and floodplains and things like that. Uh, and it's very, you know, it's young rock speak, you know kind of speaking roughly, Um, and alluvium can be very fertile, and it's super important to a large number of early human uh, cities, but it's possible that just these people didn't have quite the grasp needed to control flooding or You know, not over plant. They may have not figured out crop rotation or, you know, a proto version of crop rotation. They basically may have over farmed the land and it can no longer support their 5,000 people population. So they may have been sending groups out over time to set up new settlements and sites around them. And then those sites were better suited and they became more prosperous and more. Uh, valuable than Chetalhoyuk, and people just slowly moved away to these better sites. Um, we don't know, of course, for sure. Um, another theory, um, and this one isn't quite as popular, and I, as far as I know, um, there's really no evidence for it, but it is a very popular theory in most cases of civilization collapsing or disappearing, is that they were attacked by outsiders who uh, enslaved or killed all the inhabitants and took them somewhere else. Um, again, that would probably fit into the kind of cataclysmic event side of things, the same way like an earthquake would or a flood. Um, but, you know, again, there's no evidence for that. Um, although I should point out, and I should have mentioned it, as well with the um, with the earthquake theory, uh, archaeology typically is not great at finding at isolated events. It is best suited to find you know events that are repeated regularly over a long period of time. It can be hard to pinpoint specific disasters, and it may not even be the best um, discipline to discover something like a battle or things like that. Uh, That's not to say they've never done that, or they can't do that, it's just not the most easy thing for the discipline and archaeologists to do as a whole. So, uh, just keep that in mind. Um... And that's really kind of, um... Kind of where I should end it, um at least in terms of Chattel Hoyuk. Um, Let's see. Uh, Excuse me. Uh, Let's see. Oh, I did, there was one thing I did not mention for the kind of egalitarian society. Um, There is some talk that there may have been um, food may have not been stored as equally in houses. Um, now this could have been a spacing issue. It could have just been, you know, this could be due to a number of factors. So it may not be, um, you know, something that, uh, is quite, um, quite as egalitarian as it seemed. Um, but, um, there was kind of, at least from, what has been recovered, there does appear to be uh, some places that have less amounts of food storage possible than others. Um, but it could it is very possibly have been that it's very similar to kind of a hunter gatherer society where there is private property. Um, but there are certain things that are shared um, between the group. Um, and then, you know, part of the reason, you know, The settlement could have faded away is because, you know, it was becoming less egalitarian over time. Perhaps these, um, you know, these, some groups, you know, began to pass on their, um, very finely decorated homes and tools and things like that. And that kind of led to some, uh, you know, some inequality between people. Um, but that's all speculation. There's no way to really prove that. At least, from what we've discovered so far so uh, just keep that in mind so the final thing i want to talk about it's kind of a tie up to uh, anatolia as a whole uh, between uh, both the uh, gobekli tepe tas tepler culture and Çatalhöyük, Um and how these sites are kind of thought about and you know whether or not these are cities or if they should be, um, uh, should be considered cities or not, you know, that kind of thing. Excuse me. So we have, um, well, let's just talk about it. What is a city? Um, now this is something of a debate, uh, depending on where you live. I'm sure that, that term could, you know, you mean a couple of different things, um, at least when it comes to human history, and, you know, human development, um, I think the first person, at least that I know, that came up with a, a definition of a city, uh, was V Gordon Child, or V Gordon Child, as he's more famously referred to as, um, he was, uh, an Australian, um, archaeologist, uh, he did a lot of work in the late 1800s to, um, in the early 1900s, uh, and he, you know, he kind of came up with, uh, 10 criteria for, you know, what is or isn't a city. Um, now I do think he did, um, you know, he did kind of leave room to just kind of say that not all 10 are required. But, you know, you know, you would want probably more than half of these to be considered a, a true city. Um, so, one, you need size and density of the population should be above, um, you know, what you would get from a hunter-gatherer group. Uh, above average, I guess. Um, there is differentiation of the population. Um... And what he meant by that was is that there is specialized labor. That there are people who are working but not producing their own food. Or at least they, most of their work does not go to the production of food. Uh, there is a kind of payment of taxes to someone. Um, there are public buildings that are... Um, that are beyond mere functionality. They have to have some type of monumental or uh, social purpose outside of simple utilitarianism, and it has to be on a grand scale, or at least grander than your average building in the rest of the city. Um, The people who are not doing any food production have to be supported by the people taking in taxes. So basically there has to be some type of bureaucracy or protected class or just people who are doing work at the behest of the government or whatever and are getting paid for that labor in some way. Uh, It does not have to be monetary. Um, They have to have... um, some type of recording, um, both in terms of some type of writing. doesn't necessarily have to be true alphabet, but they have to have some type of record keeping. And there has to be some type of uh, uh, practical, I guess you'd call it science, but they have to have some type of uh, skill that is that is. That is not necessarily fully developed, but they have to be attempting to develop or create new things. Um, they have to have art as well, uh, and not just figurative art, but symbolic art, according to Child. Um, then you have uh, they have to trade and import, you know, things that they will that will then be turned into other objects in the city itself and that so they also have to and that ties into the final thing which is also they have to have craftsmen who are not related to i guess the city there have to be people from outside the like the clan or the primary population of the city so um there have been criticisms of this obviously um i have my own problems with it myself um Uh, but it's a good starting point, I think, and, you know, I don't know too many people that have a problem with everything that he puts out there. I don't necessarily think a system of record keeping has to be included, um, or a writing system, um, because the fact of the matter is, you know, there are other ways of keeping records that are relevant to the people living in the city that may not necessarily have to be written, or at least decipherable, you know, to everyone. Um, but that's just kind of my opinion. Um, also art is important, but I don't know that, you know, you would necessarily have to have art to have a city. Um, now I will say all cities have art, Um, But it is not necessarily required for them to function. I think the art was there before the city was. Or at least the people making the art were there prior to the city. And I don't think that people are necessarily drawn to the city because of the art. That may be part of it. But I think the art is a byproduct of this this kind of um, craftsman class. Or uh, the people that are not, you know, involved in producing their own food, these specialists. Um, The art is a byproduct of that. I would kind of tie in more of the art with the specialists. Um, But that's my opinion. So, and I'm not, I'm not an archaeologist, I'm not an anthropologist. That's probably, you know, so take my opinion very much with a big grain of salt. So, um, let's talk about Çatalhöyük and Gobekli Tepe and the Tass Tepler cultures. Um, how many of these things do they check off? Well, um, the Tass Tepler, size and density of the population, this is very much up for debate for them. Uh, some of these sites were larger than others. Uh, but due to how spread out they were, I don't know if they actually check that box off. And this is one of the harder things to kind of get in because this would actually change depending on what part of the world you're living in. In a place like Europe where you have like a point two people for every square mile, you know, that's that's not a lot to have a city. Uh, But then you have somewhere like, say, you know, well, where we are in Anatolia or the Middle East, you know, yeah, I think, I think at least for, uh, Chattel Hoyuk, 5,000 people would definitely qualify. Um, the Toss Tepler sites, I think a couple of them, if they weren't qualifying for that size thing, they were very close to doing so. Um, we have no evidence of taxes being paid, um, to anyone or being taken and, col- you know, collected by a group That was separate from anyone else. Um, There appears to be a lot of communal sharing and cooking items and things like that. So uh, that's a negative on that. Um, Monumental public buildings. Gobekli Tepe qualifies. Uh, Those those stone kind of pillars that are housed in these, you know, uh, covered um, proto-temples. Yes, they qualify. Uh, Chavelhoiuk does not. Um, now, uh, those uh, the next thing is uh, those not producing their own food are supported by the government, uh, whatever that is. Um, we have no evidence of this at Göbekli Tepe. Um, there is, you know, no. Um, evidence for it at Chattel Hoyuk um, because there is no discernible political leadership um, I'm sure they were taking care of their elderly and their sick and their children um, because they were probably mostly related to each other in some way or fashion and you take care of family um, because they took care of you presumably and would continue to take care of you Um but that being said uh, so they are being supported even though they're not producing their own food. It's not a government though. So yeah, there is no political power basically is why I would say that this does not qualify. Um, systems of recording and practical science. Well, Chattel Hoyuk, um, they have these paintings, um, these could be figurative, but they could also be paintings of actual stories of hunts that the people living in the houses went on, or their ancestors went on, had been passed down to them. But we can't definitively say that, so we can't check that off the list for Chattel um, Practical Science, they were very good artists, um, they, they had a lot of work with that, but there's no evidence as far as I'm aware of that they are, you know, practicing any kind of uh, metallurgy. They may have been working on animal husbandry or, you know, uh, possibly kind of an early form of uh, seed or agricultural breeding. But um, if they were doing that on purpose, we can't say. So, again, that's checked off. Um, Gebekli Tepe, again, it's possible depending on if they're stone pillars And things like that are lining up to, you know, the stars or anything like that. They could be keeping a type of record. It just might be something that we don't understand what they're referring to. We don't have this frame of reference. We are missing a large part of the picture that they're painting. We only have, you know, kind of broad strokes from this thing. And, of course, it could also just be, you know, they thought it looked cool. And it was not necessarily telling a specific story, but they just did it because it was kind of a ritual thing to do. So, we again, we can't check that off either. Um, system of writing, same thing. No evidence of that has ever been found. Um, there's, no, you know, there's no evidence that they were even attempting it, even as a form of record keeping. Uh, so that's the negative. Trade and import of raw materials. Yes, this does happen. We can find that there are things like obsidian, um, things like that um, at both sites. Um, So, you know, they are bringing in material that is not native to where they are living. Um, Which, again, I don't... This is one of those things I'm not 100% being included um, because we have evidence, again, of even hunter-gatherer groups trading things from long distances, um, as well, so I don't necessarily think that this is something that should be included on the list, now I know he said it's raw materials, um, and yes, I mean, they're raw materials, and they've been turned into items, you know, it may not be any different than, you know, um, them importing the created item from someone else but they, I'm sure they brought in the material and they brought in finished tools as well. Um, so that's another check. Uh, and then finally the specialist craftsmen from outside the kin group. Um, again, there's no evidence of this. Um, I think shuttle is the closest to taking this off because they do have, you know, these elaborate and special paintings and art pieces. Um, but there's no evidence that this was done by a separate group. This is probably something that was done by um, people during a down t- period, or you know, during the winter where you're having to be stuck inside for months on end, or if you're old or young, or that this is something that you know you would do, you know, just on downtime between planting crops and things like that. So, um, going by child's metrics. Um I think both of these sites, I think you could be generous and say, you know, you're not checking off more than four of the ten. Um so that's why these are not considered cities, at least in most people's kind of estimation. And in mine as well. Um again, I, I think there are some problems with shields or child's, excuse me, um, definition of cities. Um, but by and large, I think it's it's a good starting point. And um, just from what we have evidence of, I think it's safe to say that uh, these places are not true cities. But they are steps in that direction. And as we will see as we continue into the rest of Asia in our next episode, um, you know, that... Sorry. Uh, yeah, as we can continue, uh, into the rest of Asia, we will see that, uh, other aspects of the coming urban revolution may be developing in other parts of Asia that will then be kind of merged to the people to the, um, west here and to people further east, uh, and then further north and south, uh, in other parts of the world. Um, but I think that's a good time to call it, um, This episode turned out a bit longer than I was expecting. I guess I rambled a little too much. Um, But I hope you enjoyed. Uh, I hope you will listen to this one and uh, return next week. Um, And for those of you who haven't yet, uh, I have started uploading more and more episodes onto YouTube. I finally got season two all the way up uh, this past weekend. Uh, My goal is to get... Season 3, a few episodes put up later this week. Um, So hopefully YouTube will be caught up with us um, where it will be weekly updates uh, regularly. But um, again, I do recommend if you are able, if you have the funds to please uh, donate to any kind of legitimate relief organization to help the victims of the earthquake in Turkey and Syria. Um, The human cost, of course, being the most important thing to try to fix and take care of right now. Um, I did have someone ask about um, if there were any damage to any archaeological sites. Um, I'm only aware of one as of right now. It was a... um, It's an old... Well, it... The most recent historical site there was a Roman fort. Um, But prior to that, it had been a Hittite um, fortification or city, we're not sure. Um, Or at least I'm not sure off the top of my head. I'll look into it. Uh, I'm sure I'll talk about it when we get there in that period of time. But um, so far, that's the only major, like, archaeological site. I'm sure there's been damage to other historical sites that, you know, have had seen more regular, you know, um, habitation and use, um, but that's the only thing that stood out to me in the news reports I've read, so um, just keep that in mind. And if I hear anything else um, in terms of archaeological stuff or historical stuff, I will mention it, um, but obviously, again, the most important thing is the human cost, I guess, of this... Uh, of this disaster so um, thank you all for listening if you have any questions or feedback uh, constructive criticism is welcome uh, please feel free to email me at war at pod at gmail.com or you can direct message me uh, at twitter which I'll include the link to the twitter feed in the episode description uh, thank you all for listening and I hope you have a good rest of your day goodbye